Hello, friends. This is Dr. Eric Greenberg, and this is my podcast. It's Saturday, October 10th, 2020, and I'm coming back from a long hiatus. I recorded about six episodes, six pilot episodes back in 2018 uh, as part of a uh, launch of a, of a new podcast series. And we had it uh, hosted by blogtalkradio.com, which was perfectly fine, but uh, I think their particular plans were a little bit expensive for my taste. And um, so after a long hiatus for a variety of different reasons, personal and professional, uh, when I decided to come back to podcasting, uh, Anchor made me an offer that I could not refuse. So this is actually being hosted through anchor.fm. And uh, it seems to be a pretty good program. So we'll see how far we can take it with Anchor. And I just want to talk a little bit about this podcast. So I am, for those of you who have not, uh, listen to any of my previous podcasts, and you're welcome to do so. They will be on this platform, um, and I would encourage you to, because some of them were pretty fun. But if you don't have the time and you just want to hear this promo of mine, this short podcast promo, um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So by trade, I am a college professor. I'm a scholar of religious studies, unless you think that that's boring or something like that. It's, it's actually quite interesting. It's quite fascinating. I come from a, an interfaith background myself, and uh, I think that interfaith background kind of confused my religious identity enough that I realized I had to study religious studies on an academic level for the rest of my life in order to get a grasp on that. Um, sometimes people would ask me, oh, you're, you're studying religion, you're going into religion, what are, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a priest, a rabbi or something? Well, there are plenty of ways that one can earn a living as a scholar of religious studies without actually having to be a member of clergy of any particular religion. Of course, I think most of the people in my field go into the academic route and we teach on the college level. Um, and that is what I do. That is my main method of earning a living. I teach at a new, uh, number of different universities. Um, at this moment, um, I am a visiting assistant professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And I've been at Loyola Marymount or LMU in some way, shape or form since 2003. So I've kind of made a little bit of a splash there um, and won the hearts and minds of my students and uh, at least some of the faculty. They like me enough to keep having me there. Um, one of the things that I will talk about in our podcast is the is the woeful and dreadful state of higher education these days. So that's why, you know, that's why I'm not there as a tenured or tenure line professor as well, as most higher education faculty are not, contrary to what you might expect. But we'll come and talk about that, about the dreadful state of higher education, where three out of every four faculty members are what they call adjuncts or contingent faculty members working from paycheck to paycheck at a variety of different schools simultaneously in order to earn a, li to earn a living. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But bottom line is that's, that's my main line of work. But I I also run a nonprofit organization that I had founded back in 2011 as an outgrowth of my teaching, as an outgrowth of my academic work. And um, it's called the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace and Justice, or IRTPJ.org. And you may hear me talk about some, you know, a lot of alphabet soup in this podcast, but that's one name that you should try to get used to because that's my organization. I founded that and I'm very proud of it. And we focus on increasing uh, peace, world peace by 
focusing on interfaith dialogue and teaching people about the religions of the world and making people more aware of world religions. Um, so we'll come to talk about that in the future. Um, so this podcast is, uh, I want to make sure everyone is aware, this podcast is my own podcast. It is not uh, under the auspices of any organization. It is not related to Loyola Marymount University. It's not related to any of the other universities that I serve. It's not related directly to the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace, and Justice. This is my own endeavor, so please understand that uh, the thoughts expressed herein are purely the opinions of the management and not of any other entity that has been mentioned. Okay, so what is my specialty? What am I all about? How, how, does, a, how does a nice Jewish boy from Long Island get into studying religious studies? So I came from an interfaith background. My mother was uh, born and raised Roman Catholic in New York in pre-Vatican II times. And if you don't know what that is, we'll get into that. Um, my father was born and raised a Jew on Long Island in the mid-1930s. And, um, and they met in college. Didn't start dating until after college. Um, but they were married in the synagogue. My mother had, had forsaken Roman Catholicism by that point in time. She had had it with pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism with all of its abuses um, and its iniquity and disingenuousness and so forth. And please don't, don't uh, think that I'm disparaging Roman Catholicism today. It has changed dramatically since the Second Vatican Council. And I have a lot of respect for the religion, but... You know, all religions have things that they can be embarrassed about. And there's a lot for pre-Vatican II Catholicism to be embarrassed about. But that's just a part of my mother's life story. So she left the church in um, right about the time she was in college and then <clears throat> began to explore Judaism as her newfound faith. And so after she and my father began dating after college um, and they got engaged and they got married in the synagogue. And so I was raised initially believing that we were Jews, nominally. But I was raised in a background that had a, a tremendously open mind about other religions of the world, that the idea that, that most major religions of the world have a kernel of truth in them that we need to look for and listen to. And so I was raised, I mean, we were going to a, a a health food store and bookstore, combination health food store, bookstore that was run by aging hippies back in the 1970s and 80s. That was the environment I grew up in. And, you know, talking with these these wonderful, brilliant people who had explored uh, strange and different religions that most average Americans had never heard of. And these people were talking with me about yoga and kundalini and, and, uh, and, and all sorts of aspects of, of mysticism and, and Gurdjieff and, 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 and things like that. So that was the environment that I, I was raised in. And, and gradually I realized that my Judaism or my Jewish identity was very different than that of my classmates. Since I grew up in an area that where there were a lot of, a lot of Jews, very large um, proportion of Jews in that neighborhood, in addition to Catholics, a lot of Jews and Italians and some Irish, you know. And, and of course, also that I was very different in terms of my practice and my understanding of my Jew Jewish identity from my father's side of the family as well, which they lived in New Jersey. And we'd see them a couple of times a year during the Jewish holidays. And of course, I always felt, am I really Jewish? Am I as Jewish as they are? What, what does it mean to be a Jew? And so growing up in this, what essentially was an interfaith environment where my mother was engaged in, in studies of 
eclectic and esoteric forms of religion, mysticism, what we today sometimes call New Age religion. And her understanding of her Jewish identity incorporated uh, an understanding of uh, many other religions in the world as well. It was not exclusive of her exploration of mystical New Age religions. And so I was brought up with that kind of mindset that that I can be a Jew, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or whatever. And maybe it takes some explaining if people ask you, what are you? And I say, well, do you have an hour or two? But that I didn't have to choose. Nevertheless, that left me in a situation where I was kind of confused about my religious identity, both pleased with that confusion, but still nonetheless a little bit, um, a little bit um, at a loss for words. So when I went to college, initially I thought I was going to be a an archaeologist like Indiana Jones. But then when I took a few archaeology classes, I realized there was not as much digging or adventuring or chasing around Nazis as I thought originally. That's a joke. Um, but I, I kind of fell away from that idea of being an archaeologist. And gradually, after a period of soul-searching, I realized that I wanted to go into the field of religion, that, that I had already been, I had, had embarked on a lifelong search or exploration, investigation of religion ever since I was a child. I was brought up in that, in that environment where we explored what religion means to us individually and what it means to humankind. And, um, and so I, I became a religion major. Um, <clears throat> my specialties in college were early Christian origins and Buddhism. So I studied both of them side side by side. Then when I went to grad school, came out to to Los Angeles and studied at the Claremont School of Theology. And um, they didn't have anything in Buddhism or world religions there. So I, I primarily was, was confined to the field of New Testament and Christian origins. And that served me well for a while. And I spent basically 12 years in grad school earning two masters and a PhD in New Testament and Christian origins. And, uh, and then after that embarked on the, on the, the highly daunting and, and fraught search for a job in higher education. But uh, we'll talk about that some other time. Bottom line is um, I continued to study religion and what it means to human beings on a personal level, what it means to humanity. And it's something that fascinates me. And um, if you're here listening to this podcast, I'm gathering that it probably fascinates you enough to want to come and listen to me. And I hope that we will garner a friendship and that you'll come to enjoy my musings on religion. And I, I honestly, I'm the kind of guy who likes to listen more than speak. Of course, I'm talking a lot right now, but, um, but that's because this is my show. And um, I do want to hear from you. I'd like for people to call in and engage in conversation with me. And I will certainly have a number of, of guests on the show, but this is once again just a little promo here to kind of whet your appetite about the kinds of things that we could talk about. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I am the kind of person that listens more than I talk, but I've come to the point now that I am 50 years of age, I uh, had my 50th birthday two days ago, and I've come to the point where I do realize that I do have a significant amount of wisdom to share, things that I've been through, things that I've seen, that I've studied. And I'd like to share that with you, the listener. I'd like to share that with the world and talk about what I know. And I'll tell you, there's a lot I don't know. And I know that. There's a story about Socrates who was called, uh, he was actually called the uh, by the, the uh, 
the oracle at Delphi, the Pythian priestess, he was called by her the wisest man alive. And when the when he gained uh, when he, he caught wind of this and heard that she had spoken of him as the wisest man alive, he said, I am only the wisest man because I know how unwise I am. So please don't let any of my words of self-praise here to kind of build myself up and get you interested in this podcast. Don't let that suggest to you that I think too much of myself. I know how much I don't know. And that's actually kind of, I think, part of my wisdom is that I've spent a lot of time listening to people, spent a lot of time learning from people, a lot of time investigating and um, getting a sense of what there is out there. And there's a lot out there, my friends, a lot of things that I've seen that I don't understand, a lot of things that need further investigation. So what are some of the things that I'm working on right now in my, my professional and academic life? Well, I'm working on two books, one of which is a family memoir provisionally entitled The Exile, and it has it is a family memoir. It, it has to do with issues of compulsive hoarding, child abuse, uh, elder care, all sorts of things that I witnessed or was engaged in in my family. And uh, ultimately, it, it is essentially a theological book, a theological treatise. It deals with the question of the problem of human suffering and why do we get old and die and why do bad things happen to good people? And it also, it deals with anger at God. That's a, that's a topic that I think a lot of us maybe would like to hear about, um, about the anger at God that many of us have. And I'm, I'm sure probably a lot of you listening to that, you think, anger at God? How could you be angry at God? God is God. You know what? A friend of mine once said, and this is a devout Christian woman, she said, it's okay to be angry with God. He's big enough to take it. And I think that's a very mature way of looking at it. Because I think in a lot of faiths, we often forget that it's okay to be angry at God, even though God is the sovereign of the universe, however we conceive of him, her, or it. You know, but whoever said we're not allowed to be angry with God? Job was angry with God. You know, so why can't we be angry with God from time to time? That's part of our developing developing relationship with the divine, the sublime, the higher reality, the higher power. So that's something that my my book, The Exile, treats. I've been working on it for a decade now, and hopefully uh, we'll get to a get to a, a final draft fairly soon. I'm already at about 400 pages. Has a lot of editing left to do. The other book that I'm working on right now is is more. It is also for a popular audience. By the way, Exile is for a popular audience. It is not a an academic book. I'm not really too keen on writing ap- academic books because only a few people are going to read those. I want to write for a larger audience. So the Exile is for a larger audience. As is the next book, which is called Interfaith America, and I'm in the middle of researching that right now. Um, <clears throat> it's basically going to focus on trying to describe and analyze and define the interfaith movement, particularly within the United States. It is, of course, a worldwide movement, but but uh, in as much as I live in the United States, I want to talk about what it's like here to be in the interfaith movement and who are some of the key players, who are some of the fantastic people that I've met and worked with, who are some of the fantastic people that I'd like to meet and work with that I've never met, who are some of the 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 key stakeholders and key figures in that movement and what are they working on and what would they like to see accomplished and uh, who are some of their influences. So I'm doing interviews right now. I'm at the moment, I'm actually interviewing quite a number of conservative Christians from a more evangelical background, because that's one of the things that I think is 
largely missing from the interfaith discussion. The interfaith movement tends to be more of a progressive leaning movement, and that's fine. It is what it is. But I think sometimes um, we tend to make it a bit uncomfortable for people of more conservative mindsets to take part in that in that endeavor. And of course, people in the interfaith movement will also will often make excuses and say, oh, they don't want to be part of this. They're too conservative. They don't want to be part of the discussion. Well, that's not true. It depends on who you're talking to. Are there many fundamentalist conservative Christians that want nothing, that want no part in the interfaith movement, that think that tolerance or interfaith dialogue stands in the way of Christ? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them tend to be in the Southern Baptist Convention, that particular movement. But there are a lot of people, some of whom are in uh, other aspects of the, the larger Baptist movement, like the uh, the American Baptist churches and uh, Baptist World Alliance, people like that who I've spoken to who are very focused on religious tolerance, interfaith dialogue, the ecumenical movement, and we just don't hear about them. And I think a large part of that has to be, uh, the blame has to be laid at the doorstep of the interfaith movement itself because uh, they're just not welcoming enough of people who are slightly right of center, but still want to engage in interfaith dialogue. And those are some of the people I'm talking with right now, and they are tremendously tolerant. It shocked me, and that just sort of shows me my own shortcomings as, as a scholar, as a person in the movement, that I did not know that. But one of the things that I have noticed about the interfaith movement is that it is very fragmented, and it is very young as a movement. There are Tons of people who are super important that don't even know of each other's existence. Big, important groups that don't even know of each other. And maybe that's one of the things that I'm trying to do in my own interfaith work within the IRTPJ, the Inter Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace and Justice, as I mentioned. It's more alphabet soup for you. Is that we're trying to act maybe as a kind of a clearinghouse or a, sort of an entrepreneur of of interfaith dialogue, trying to bring people together and and uh, help people get to know each other so that they can be more effective in their combined missions, more effective than they would be working on their own. So, so I have noticed that there's a lot of fragmentation, a lot of important people that don't even know of each other's existence, and it shocks me. Now, I don't want <clears throat> to take too much time in this this podcast. This is a short version today. We're just going to keep it pretty short. Um, but I do want to say that I'm kind of coming off of a bit of a high because the IRTPJ just had its annual Interfaith Solidarity March, Los Angeles, its fifth annual such event uh, this year. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to have it um, virtually. So we did it through Zoom, but we had a couple of hundred people as attendees and participants and and we also had about 500 people watching it on um, on YouTube Live uh, through streaming. Um, so it was a great event. And we put a lot of effort into that. We had a whole team of people working on that. So so I'm pretty proud of that. And and um, that is actually part of a an even larger movement called the Interfaith March for Peace and Justice, or IMPJ. Don't get that confused with IRTPJ. That's IMPJ. But the Interfaith March for Peace and Justice is a is a movement, a coalition of, of local, uh, autonomous, independent marches around the world. We have, at this point, about two dozen that have marched with us regularly for the last several years. Um, but it was started by my friend and colleague, Greg Davis, out of Columbus, Ohio. And we have 
um, you know, upwards of about uh, about 20 different locations in the United States and about six locations abroad, give or take a little bit, but overall about two dozen. And um, after, after they got in touch with us, it was actually, um, I think in 2018, um, they contacted us and said, hey, we just found you on the internet and we've been marching for a year now in various locations. We found out that you've been marching for several years. We're marching on the same exact date and time as you in Los Angeles. We want to partner with you. And so I looked at that as, as providential. That's, that's the work of God right there. So we got on board. So our LA-based march became a part of the Interfaith March for Peace and Justice Coalition of Interfaith Marches. And then shortly after that, Greg said that their small organization out of Columbus, Ohio, that had been kind of curating and leading this coalition, um, that it was kind of too big for them, that they really had more of a local focus or scope, uh, the Safe Alliance of Interfaith Leaders of Columbus, Ohio, otherwise known as SAIL, S-A-I-L. So they were more locally focused and they so they wanted our help and our, um, our partnership. And so we worked out a memorandum of understanding and, and the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace and Justice basically took over corporate control of the IMPJ coalition. So uh, as of 2019, we are now the umbrella corporation of the Interfaith March for Peace and Justice. So our little group in LA, our tiny little group on a shoestring budget, hint, hint, give, you know, give, give a donation. We'll talk about that later. Um, you know, we've been not only running our own local interfaith march since that time, since actually since 2016, we've been marching. So 2020 was our fifth annual march. But also for the last uh, two years, we've been since 2019 and 2020, we've been coordinating upwards of two dozen marches across the world as as part of our charge. So those marches are, of course, as I said, um, largely independent, semi-autonomous marches. Of course, they have to abide by certain guidelines and certain branding and a certain vision that we have, um, but they are self-funded and self-governed. And, uh, you know, we're not going to go into the marches that are over there in Malawi and start telling them what to do, or the one in Uganda, or the one in Jammu Kashmir. You know, we're not going to say, oh, you have to do it this way or that way. We leave them to, you know, figure out where they want to get their funding from and whether they want to be uh, you know, inside a building or out in the streets or what they want to do. But we basically ask for certain guidelines. But uh, so we've been very busy in our little group here in L.A. that now controls not only our own L.A.-based march, but also guides these two dozen or so marches across the world. So anyway, we're coming off of a high from that. We just had an amazing event virtually, despite the fact that we couldn't see each other in person, face-to-face in the streets. But... Um, but that's some of one of the things that I will talk with you about, the importance of interfaith events like that and interfaith marches. So we can come back to that. Um, we also have a, had a sad occurrence recently, which I will mention. Uh, one of our founding inaugural board members, who was a mentor of mine, Dr. James Alvin Sanders, otherwise known as Jim Sanders. Uh, he passed away in the past week. Um, he was 92. Uh, if you know anything about Hebrew Bible or biblical studies, you probably will know his name. He is one of the most, uh, prominent and most important Bible scholars of the 20th century, born in 1927. 
and um, uh, we'll do more of a, a full retrospective of his life a little bit later on. Um, but he was involved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the project to uh, to preserve, translate, publish, uh, and disseminate the information in the Dead Sea Scrolls for scholarly research. He uh, uh, he is known for having unrolled the uh, Psalms Scroll uh, back in 1961, I believe it was, unrolling it and being part of the initial efforts to preserve it as a as a manuscript and um, to give a viable translation of it and to publish that translation. That's one of the things that helped put him on the map. But of course, he did much more than that over the next, what, 70 years of his life, 60, 70 years, um, uh, having uh, published dozens of books, including Torah and Canon is one of the main ones that people always think of when they hear of Jim Sanders. He focused on canonical criticism, which we can talk about later. I won't... I won't take any time and talk about that now, but the idea of focusing on how do individual texts, how do they function within the canon of the Bible, whether it's the Jewish Bible or the various forms of the Christian Bible, that was a lot of what he talked about. But also in his later years, he focused on what is what he has called the monotheizing process. And if I can just put that into a few words, having worked with him very, very closely over the last several years in our interfaith work, my understanding is the idea that all of the great monotheistic religions of the world, particularly we're talking about the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, um, that if we purport to worship one God, then that means we worship the same God. And if we purport to worship the same God, then we really have a long way to go before we really can claim that we are, in fact, worshiping one God. Now, what does that mean? Does that sound like a lot of gobbledygook to you? Well, what it means is if we spend all of our time demonizing each other, Christians demonizing Muslims and Jews, Jews demonizing Muslims, Muslims demonizing Christians and Jews, if, if these groups hold each other as anything less than brethren, as children of the same God, if we demonize each other, if we disparage each other, if we treat each other any less than perfectly, then we really aren't monotheistic. We are treating each other as if we were worshiping different gods, as if the other were worshiping some kind of false god or a demon god or something like that. So part of what I, I understood from his, his research in recent years, his writing about the monotheizing process, is that we're still trying to get it right. As these religions we're we're on the path to worshiping one god but we're not there yet it's a process it's a process of maturation of us of our religions our our cultural and religious complexes in getting trying to get it right in really worshiping god the way god deserves to be worshiped as one god and treating our fellow human beings as if they were children of that same god i hope that makes sense i hope i'm not rambling um he he did uh, publish a book a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, without turning around and getting it from off of my books, bookshelf. It is called The Monotheizing Process, and it is one of the last books he wrote. Um, the very last book he wrote was a personal memoir called The Rebirth of a Born-Again Christian, which talks about his upbringing in the, uh, the American South, in Jim Crow era South, and his process of understanding um, the the implicit and explicit racism that was in 
Southern culture and larger American culture around him and how he came to understand his, the, his responsibilities as a Christian to love all people and not merely white people. Um, it, was, it was an amazing book, really uh, talking about his having opened his eyes as a, as a Christian to the, the racism going on all around him. Um, that was an amazing, amazing book. And I highly recommend that anybody who wants to know more about Jim Sanders' life should read both of these books. So, um, so he passed away about a week ago. And um, I have to say that I'm very grateful that he was willing to serve on the board of directors of the Institute for Religious Tolerance. I, I studied under him back in my time at Claremont. Uh, he was a professor for many, many years at the uh, Claremont School of Theology. Uh, with a, a dual position at the Claremont Graduate University. Both these schools were kind of connected and overlapping in ways. Um, and uh, he taught Hebrew Bible there for many years. And of course, Hebrew Bible was not my field, but he had tremendous background in New Testament as well, especially in how the Hebrew Bible and New Testament were connected to one another. And so during one of the semesters where most of the New Testament professors were either on sabbatical or had retired and they hadn't been replaced yet, Dr. Sanders kindly stepped in and I took a number of classes from him on New Testament and also on the Hebrew Bible at that time. And I came to know him quite well. And it was during that time that he asked me um, to, uh, to sort of do a personal favor that he and his wife used to travel every summer she was a dancer and she would uh, go to the American Dance Festival and he would go to various um, colloquia and symposia and conferences and things. And so they would travel apart and together and they would have their little camper that they'd drive cross country. And so they had a, a wonderful dog, a Malamute named Blackie, who was just adorable. And uh, at some point, I think she had lost her voice. I don't know whether her vocal cords had been removed or what, but she had a sort of a, a very kind of a, a, a cool sounding bark, sort of like, oh, 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 like that. You know, it was not very vocalized and it was kind of cute. Um, I, I mean, I hope that her vocal cords hadn't been removed, but it did have a cuteness to it, despite whatever trauma she may have been through by previous owners. Anyway, so they, they asked me to watch the dog and watch the house while they were gone. So I'd live there for weeks and weeks on end and they would give me a, a modest stipend or, or honorarium, which he called uh, manse. I remember, I remember was the term that he would put on the check since I was sort of living in the house like it was a clergy member's manse. And, um, and I'd stay there and I'd walk the dog twice a day and I'd feed her and I basically spent all my time studying. And, and this was after a, a life-threatening illness that I had had. So I was very glad to have some time alone from the, the craziness that was going on in, in my life that kind of, that, uh, that kind of gave rise to that, that illness. But, you know, this was after my, my basic recovery. And I just stayed in that house alone and occasionally had some friends over and, and, and just studied, studied, studied and tried to get further along in my PhD program because that was where I was just leading up to my qualifying exams. Some programs called them comprehensive exams or comps. We called them quals. Not quails, but quals. Qualifying exams. And so they, these were four big exams that you had to take over the course of four hours each. And I believe it was one week or two weeks. I'm trying to remember exactly long, how long we, we took to take those exams. I think it was maybe two weeks, but 16 hours of exams. And uh, so it was, it was six months of, of studying and leading up to that. And so I stayed in the house for a few months at a time here and there while they were on vacation and, 
And, and so in the process, I got to know the family. And when they were back from vacation, we continued to do things together and have dinner together. And they'd have me over frequently. And Dr. Sanders became kind of a mentor of mine. And he, he was willing to sit on my qualifying exam committee. Um, and he continued to help over the next couple of years when I uh, was writing my dissertation after the quals were over. And he helped to um, even get me some employment at times when uh, when employment was was sparse. Um, he was very good to me. And so he became a mentor to me, even though I was not primarily in the field of Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Um, there was enough overlap between our fields that, that he and I could have a conversation. And I learned a lot from him, also on a personal level and a spiritual level. He was also the founder of the Ancient Biblical Manuscript Center, or ABMC. And um, that was the um, one of the research centers at the Claremont School of Theology. And they held the, um, the digitized images of all the Dead Sea Scrolls that had been published up to that point. And they made these available to scholars to use to study them. So if you couldn't go to Israel and actually go see the scrolls under glass, you could get the, the microfilm or digital copies of these these fantastic ancient manuscripts and study them on your own, uh, either through interlibrary loan or, or as time wore on, they were able to make the digital images available to you electronically. Um, so he was the founder of that institute. And I, I worked there as a research associate for a number of years. I think that actually was one of the one of the ways that I continued to get to know him better. And that was one of the reasons he reached out to me specifically and asked me if I would like to be the uh, the caretaker of their house when he and his wife were on were on vacation, uh, since I was one of the research associates at the institute that he had founded. So um, it, it was incredible getting to know him better. And so ultimately, uh, a couple of years ago in, in 2010 and 2011, when I was pioneering the thought of trying to uh, found the Institute for Religious Tolerance, Peace and Justice, I had asked him, partly because of his work in the monotheizing process and the larger context of interfaith dialogue. I asked him if he would be willing to sit on our board and he was gracious enough to do so. And and so here's this world famous guy with people all over the world clamoring for his attention to read their manuscripts or to recommend them to this or put them in touch with that person or to sit on their board. And he was willing to sit on my board. And on some level, I kind of felt like the little kid you know, asking Pa or asking Grandpa to come and and help out with his with my little project selling lemonade at the at the lemonade stand on the side of the road. You get my meaning that you know here I am a little little kid playing a grown ups game, but the grown up was willing to help me out, and I am eternally grateful to him for that. Now I do want to mention one thing that I'm a little bit well a little bit regretful of is that over the last couple of months, I had been busy with a lot of different things career-wise, obviously, uh, you know, the, the various institutions, the schools that I teach at, we all were in the process of moving our curricula online because of the COVID pandemic. So I was super busy. I also had a few health challenges. And so I hadn't gotten a chance to reach out to Dr. Sanders and just say hello and check in with him. Uh, not least of which we were, of course, involved in producing the Interfaith March, which was for the very organization, uh, the board of which, uh, on whose board he sat. So part of me was thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing good work for the board. I'll let him know when we have the next opportunity to have a board meeting, I'll let him know what we're doing. And I didn't, and I put it off. And I put several 
notes on my to-do list saying, get in touch with Dr. Sanders. Get in touch with Dr. Sanders. And uh, let me see here if I can find one of them here. I'll read it to you. Here it is. It says, contact Jim Sanders, say hello, and thank him for the brilliance of his memoir. Here's the one below that. I figured if I kept putting notes here on my to-do list, this is my electronic to-do list that I always keep open on my computer desktop. If I put enough of these here, it'll stand out to me amidst the many other items that I have here, and I'll remember to do it at an opportune moment. So the next one says, send regards to Jim Sanders and praise his memoir, exclamation point. And I never did it. And I lost my opportunity. And of course, I look back on this and I, I certainly hope that through the conversations we've had, that he understood how highly I thought of him. And one of the last personal conversations we had a few months ago, I did tell him how how much his uh, his monotheizing process that the book called The Monotheizing Process, how much it meant to me and how much it had impacted my work and my work with the Institute. And and I could hear in his voice, he was pleased about that. He sort of said, really? Oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can quote him, but he, he seemed pleased or maybe a little surprised, which seems odd to me because, you know, his book was so amazing and and it was informing every aspect of our work together. But um, I wish that I had said more to him about it. And that's one thing that I would I would say that is a regret of my life, among the regrets that I have in my life, that I did not tell him more recently and more directly how much I cherished his presence in my life and his willingness to sit on our board and um, and and everything that he had done for me over the last almost two decades of working with him. So... Um, or actually more than that. I worked with him for more than two decades, uh, having been his student in the in the mid-90s. But in terms of our more direct work together, um, probably since about 2001 or so, um, I really appreciated that. So I'd like to dedicate this, uh, this podcast episode to the memory of Dr. Jim Sanders. And we will talk more about him in the future and some of his accomplishments so that you know a little bit more about his work. But um, so I'm going to come to a close here. I've talked a lot longer than I thought I would. It turns out this is it's almost 40 minutes now, but uh, hopefully you'll get a sense of my speaking style and the kinds of things that I like to talk about. But I want to hear about you. I want to hear what you have to to ask about, some things that we can have discussions about. Right into the show, and uh, we'll put some contact information here, how you can get in touch with us. And, uh, and tell me what you'd like to hear about. We can have some Q&A with Dr. Eric Greenberg. So anyway, I'm going to end off for now. I want to thank you for listening. And I hope you found this interesting. And uh, I want to bless you all. And uh, let's have some great conversations about religion and spirituality and interfaith dialogue and how these play a role in the modern world. And we can talk about a lot of other things uh, other than religion and spirituality, politics and current events. Of course, those will probably... I'll, I'll bring it back to the question of religion and spirituality, but we can talk about all sorts of things, all manner of things. So have a lovely day, my friends. This is Dr. Eric Greenberg signing off. Be well.